So on July 8th, you can just skip that, that one, Max. On July 8th, we're going to be no longer in the Grandview Theater. Um, maybe you've heard this announcement already. We're going to be moving to a new location. Um, we're going to be gathering at a location called CA Backspace. CA Backspace is a new event venue. It's located in the backspace of Class Act Bookings Building. Hence, it's in the Class Act's backspace. Hence, they call it CA Backspace. So if you're wondering what, what this event center is, that's what's going on there. And uh, we're really excited about this space. It's got a lot of flexibility and atmosphere and qualities that will work better for our children's ministry, as well as our particular vision for worship. So... During this series, as we transition to this new space, we'll be moving there on July 8th. That'll be our first service in the new space. We're going to take some time and talk through some prescription, um, some prescription lenses that are essential for us to accomplish the vision that God has for our church. For, for those who are in the room, how many of you in the room wear glasses or contacts? Do we have any other people? Okay, so a lot of you. Um, uh, the rest of you, you just don't know what you're missing out on, you know? And uh, so you've, you've been to the eye doctor, and you sit in the room, and it's a dark room, and they do a lot of tests, but they eventually put this giant apparatus up against your face, and then they click through these lenses, and it's like, does one look better, or does two look better? You, you, you've been there. You've done it. Um, and what I, I got new prescriptions recently, and I realized that just the smallest adjustment allowed me to see more clearly. Like it was the difference between seeing in a haze or seeing in a fog and being able to see more clearly. So in this series, we're talking about small, just minor adjustments that we can make as people and as a community that will help us better live into and see more clearly the vision that God has for our church. So last week, we introduced six prescription lenses. Six things that will help us see and live with purpose and clarity here at Central City Church. So here they are. Transparency, compassion, excellence, sacrifice, evangelism, and diversity. So over the next five weeks, we're going to spend some time with each of these. And today, we're going to start at the beginning with transparency. So when I talk about transparency, what I'm talking about is this need that we have, uh, maybe not something we think we need, but a real need that we have to be vulnerable and authentic. I'm talking about how we as humans tend to not be those things. We, we tend to try and hide. We pretend. We pretend like we have it all together. Have you ever done this? We pretend like we're okay when we're not. We pretend that we have it all together when we don't. And so we put up these masks out of fear that if people see us for who we really are, they'll discover we're just a fraud and they won't actually like us. And so we want to be a place here at Central City Church where compassion and respect and love is so prevalent in our relationships that people all of a sudden find themselves taking off their masks for the first time, if they haven't already. Where they're just like, I don't even know why I have this mask on anymore. Like, I can tell that these people really just want to know who I am in order to create an environment where people feel comfortable enough to take off their masks, we have to be willing to do the same. So we want this to be a place where shame is checked at the door. No place for shame here. So when we talk about transparency, we're talking about what it means to be comfortably honest. In other words, being so comfortable uh, in your community and amongst your people that you can be honest about who you are. 
Brenna Brown is considered by many the expert on uh, shame and vulnerability, and, and her TED Talk has been seen, I think, a billion times at this point. Maybe you've watched it yourself. If you haven't, I encourage you. Um, but last week, I listened to her seminar on the power of vulnerability. Um, it's easily the most important thing I've ever listened to. Um, and I will, I will add to that, I just finished Mere Christianity, and I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to risk saying I think the power of vulnerability might be more important. And that's saying something, because I'm, I'm a big fan of C.S. Lewis, if you're familiar with that book. So it's, it's really important, and I can't re- recommend it enough. Now, she's studied this topic, shame, vulnerability, transparency, authenticity. She studied it for years. I mean, this is, she's a researcher. She studied it for years, and she spent in this seminar that you, get, you can listen to, she spent like six, almost seven hours unpacking it. So I have studied it for a week, okay? And I'm going to spend about 20, 30 minutes, all right? So I say that to say, go listen to her seminar, right? Uh, I'm going to just try to give you enough today, what I've learned and, sh- and some of the things that I've wrestled with so that you're inspired to go listen to it, uh, whether you have to buy it or borrow it. You can borrow it on Hoopla. If you haven't discovered this app, it's phenomenal. With a library subscription, you can borrow it for free. Um, but you can also purchase these lectures, The Power of Vulnerability. So after listening to this talk, though, I realized that, that like most of my anxiety and most of my fear, most of my stress is actually rooted in shame. And my attempt to avoid vulnerable situations. Like, I, it is natural and it's, it's normal, and, and, and you're, you do this too, I promise you, we want to avoid vulnerability because it's uncomfortable. So this is what shame is. We're going to talk about shame a little bit. Shame is the fear or this feeling that I'm not enough. Now, shame, one way to understand shame is to compare it to a couple other things. Shame is different than embarrassment, and it's different than guilt. So we can kind of understand shame if you can understand embarrassment and guilt. So here's how it's different. Here's what embarrassment is. Embarrassment, you're embarrassed when you do something a little off. It's, you feel embarrassed. But here's the thing that makes you embarrassed and not filled with shame. You, you know somewhere deep down inside of you that other people probably do it too. And so it allows you, even though you might be really embarrassed in the moment, later you can laugh about it. So that's what it feels like to be embarrassed. You know, like it's, it's embarrassing, but you know other people experience. That's not shame. Shame gives you this overwhelming sense that you're completely alone and you're the only one who's experiencing it. It isolates. Creeps in and it isolates. That's shame. So shame is an embarrassment. It's it's a little deeper. It's a little harder. And it's not guilt either. So guilt is really good. Um, That might sound strange, but it's really good because here's guilt. Guilt is this feeling that you've done something wrong. And friends, when you do something wrong, you should feel like you've done something wrong because that is how you will change. So people who don't feel guilt are sociopaths, like by definition. So like when you hurt somebody, you should feel a sense that I did something wrong. But guilt is not shame. So guilt says, I, I made a mistake. Shame says, I am a mistake. A little different. Guilt says, I've done something wrong. Shame says, I am wrong. Shame is this deeply held fear that there's something wrong with me, that I'm not enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not popular enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not good looking enough. I'm not creative enough. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough innovation. Like specifically with time, people wake up and a lot of times the first thing they say in the morning is, I didn't get enough sleep. And then when we go to bed, we feel, oh, I didn't get enough done. 
We live in this culture of shame, and everything from the beginning to the end is filled with this sense that I haven't done enough. I didn't get enough sleep, but then in the evening, I feel like I didn't get enough done. And so we live and we wrestle with this sense of shame. So shame makes us want to hide, and it makes us want to hide from ourselves, and it makes us want to hide from each other and from God. Or worse, it makes us want to blame others or fight back. Shame produces flight or fight. So you either run away and hide, or you fight back and you attack, or you blame, or you act out. And it's the birthplace of pain and suffering and anxiety and fear. And so shame creeps into your life to cause havoc. So after listening to her talks, I started to just see how much shame was impacting me. In fact, me and Alyssa have both been listening to the talks uh, this week, and it's, it's all, we're, all we've been talking about as uh, Alyssa was gone and we've been on the phone. And I'm seeing it show up in very sort of uh, unlikely places. So I want, I want to tell you a story Um, to give you an illustration of how shame just creeps into places that you might not think. On Friday night, uh, I had a wedding rehearsal for my uh, friends Jerry and Kelsey. They got married last night, and the wedding rehearsal was on Friday. And I'd gotten all my work done, and I was kind of trying to take the day off. And so I had some time in the afternoon, and I was trying to decide whether I was going to mow. And I didn't really want to mow the grass because it was really hot, and I didn't think I'd have enough time to get it all done. But I actually really enjoy mowing the grass. So last minute, I said, you know what? I'm going to go mow the grass. I think I can get a lot of it done. And when I get you know, as much done as I can, I'll go in, and I'll change, and I'll get ready for the wedding, wedding rehearsal, I'll go take a shower and stuff. Now, we just bought a, a new lawnmower. Um, it's new to us, it's actually used, and it's great. I just love it um, because it's, it's self-propelled. And, oh, it's like heaven um, because it's 100 times easier to mow. I have a pretty large yard, not lar- large enough to need a riding mower, but it's a pretty large one. And uh, this lawnmower, I mean, it's so powerful. It's 190 cc, it's got 7.25 torque. I mean. It's dad's happy Father's Day and giving you the specs. And so I'm out there and I'm mowing and all of a sudden I forget that there's this stump and it's covered up with grass. I go right over the stump and I just hit it. And uh, I hit it so hard, all 199cc worth of speed and it, it hits, it gets stuck, the engine shuts off. And when I start it back up, it's just wobbling. The whole thing's shaking. I was so frustrated. In fact, in that moment, that is when shame entered into the story. I'll, I'll explain why in a little bit. So I didn't know it then, but that's when it entered in. So I, I check under it, and I, I realized that the stump had bent the blade, and that's why it's wobbling. It's, like a, it's, it's not, it's not uh, symmetrical anymore. So I look at my watch, and I look at the mower, and I think about the wedding, and I think about the traffic, and I'm like, do I have time to go buy a new blade and put it on? Right? And I say, yeah, okay. It was early afternoon, I'm thinking, I can get to Home Depot real fast, I can get back be done with this. I might not have time to mow, but I can get the new blade on and I can mow the next day. So I hop in my car and I head on to 71. Now, you remember, shame has secretly entered into this story. I'll tell you why in a little bit, but it's, shame puts you in a really bad mood. I don't know if you knew this, but when you're like, man, I feel like I'm in a really bad mood, it's probably because shame has entered into your story. Something, something deeper is happening under the surface. So I'm already there. I'm in a bad mood because, because of something I'm feeling that I'm not aware of. And so I get on 71 and it's a standstill. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I'm like, oh, it's Friday. Everyone left work early, you know? So it's just a standstill. And, um, I'm, I'm, an, and I'm an idiot. I should have known that. Um, and now I'm hot, and I'm stuck in traffic, and so I am start getting really annoyed. And then my gas light comes on, and my little digital bar goes all the way to empty, like empty, empty. 
which Alyssa gives me a hard time about driving on empty too long. Do we have any drivers on empty people? Yes, thank you. Um, so a little bit of shame there, because I'm like, I'm stuck in traffic. I'm going to run out of gas. And it's 90 out on 71. This is not going to go well. And I have to be at a wedding rehearsal 40 minutes away in a, in a couple of hours. So I, I'm starting to get uh, stressed out. I know I, I'm not cussing yet. So that's where I'm at in the story. I'm not cussing yet, but I'm getting close. So I make it down 71 and I get off the exit and there's a gas station. Of course, there's a gas station at the exit, but it's packed. So I pull in, I'm in line and I'm thinking to myself, you know, at least if I run out of gas here, I can get out and I can push it, you know, the five feet once the car moves. So the car eventually moves. I pull up, I get out, I go put my debit card in the slot debit card reader won't work. So I, I try again, it won't work. Okay, not cussing yet. And I think, okay, that's fine, okay. I'm already in a bad mood. It's already hot. It's taking longer than I thought. So I go inside. I'm gonna just you know, pay inside because the debit card reader's not working. The line is the whole length of the chip aisle. You know, you know that aisle. Whole, all the way down it. And so I'm standing in line, I'm thinking to myself, do I wait for the line or do I go to another gas station? So if you know anything about me, I went to another gas station, <laughs> like obviously. So I'm going down the street and I'm back in traffic now. So I'm getting stressed out even more. And my, I'm, I got my phone open because I'm not sure where the next gas station is. And I'm going down the street and my phone's not really working because we've already used up all our data. So we're in safety mode. Anyone Verizon customers out there? So in safety mode, it works, but not really. And, and so I don't actually know where the next, and then eventually it loads. And I realize that I'm going down on a divided highway and the closest gas station is a mile or two behind me. Now I'm cussing. Like, I'm just mad. I'm, I'm, I am. I'm just really, I'm just pissed. And here's where it gets really interesting. I'm mad at Alyssa. <laughs> I am. I was. I'm just like, I'm pissed, and I'm thinking about the conversations I'm going to have with her. I'm mad at her because she told me to just buy a new lawnmower. And I decided against her recommendation to buy a used one. And now it's broke and I'm stuck in traffic and I'm going to run out of gas. And it's her fault that I'm stressed, you know, because. <laughs> Am I alone? So I'm mad. I'm annoyed at Alyssa, which doesn't make any sense. And so I stop. So I've been listening to Brenna Brown for like the whole week. I stop and I force myself to think, to think about it. I force myself to calm down and really think about it. What's going on here? And I ask myself, where's the shame? Because when you're blaming someone, especially when it doesn't make sense, but just in general, when you blame someone, it's likely because you're rooted in shame. We tend to be most judgmental towards people where we are vulnerable to shame. So those shame triggers in your life, if you don't know what they are, think about where you judge people. And wherever you judge people, that's probably where the shame triggers are. That's what she talks about. So I'm asking myself, where am I dealing with shame? Where's the shame in this story? And, and you know, stressful, high anxiety situations, what they do is they bring it to the surface. So sure, you know, traffic and low fuel lights and all that are annoying, but I've been in situations like that and I haven't been mad and I certainly haven't been mad at Alyssa. So obviously something is going on under the surface. And I didn't have to think very long. So, you know, Alyssa told me to buy a new lawnmower and I thought, well, let's get a used one because we have so much money to spend, I can get a lot more lawnmower that's used, you know, more features, better engine, and self-propelled. 
which is easier. I can get that used. I can't get that if I buy it new. And that's what I ended up doing against her recommendation. And since then, I realized this. I've been secretly worried that this lawnmower is going to break down. And I won't be able to fix it. And the fact that I know very little about lawnmowers and nothing how to fix them, I, I'm basically worried that she will know that, that I don't know enough about used lawnmowers to buy one and not get ripped off, like if I'm honest. And it will be revealed at some point that it turns out when it comes to lawnmowers, I'm a fraud. Which sounds funny, but it was really bothering me. And she'll say, I told you so. Which is a shame trigger for most people. I told you so. One of the major shame triggers for women um, is appearance. It's, this is because of our culture. It's a social construct. Culture puts a lot of pressure on women to look a certain way, and so culture is a major producer of shame. And so for women, a lot of times, it's how you look. One of the major shame triggers for men, because of our culture, the pressure that we experience in our culture, is weakness. We don't want to be perceived as weakness. Dad's in the room. We don't want to be perceived as weak. And when this used lawnmower breaks down and I can't fix it, Alyssa will finally know all of my lawnmower weaknesses <laughs> and that I'm a fraud. And it sounds silly, but it was really bothering me. And that's, that's why everything you know, went wrong. I was mad at Alyssa because without her knowing, I was blaming her for my shame, for my fear of not being enough, about something so simple. And, and that's the thing with shame. Someone in, a similar, in my situation might just be embarrassed or not really care. So it's different for every person. Shame for one person might just be embarrassment for someone else. Now, Brenda Brown has this really simple mantra that she tells herself when it comes to being vulnerable. It's a simple line that we're going to actually make a mantra for our church. Um, when we talk about transparency, when we're feeling that shame and we experience those shame triggers, uh, this is what she tells herself. She says, don't shrink back. Don't puff up. Just show up and let yourself be seen. Don't shrink back. Don't puff up. Just show up and let yourself be seen. So shrinking back for me would be this. I, it would be surrendering and saying, I knew Alyssa was right, and I can't do anything right. Don't do that. And puffing up for me would be what I was really doing, um, getting defensive and even angry in a way that doesn't always make sense. Don't do that. Don't do either of those things. Don't shrink back. Don't puff up. Instead, I said to myself, I said, this is my space. This was my decision, and we will figure it out. And it's not even broke. I just bent the blade, so calm the down. This is my space, we can figure it out. So you wanna know what happened? I got gas and I didn't end up stranded on the road. I got the Home Depot, I bought a new blade, the best blade money could buy, I made sure of that. <laughs> and I went home, I put it on my lawnmower, I finished mowing the entire yard, I took a shower, got dressed for the wedding rehearsal and made it on time. Woo! Yeah, you can clap, I'm proud. I figured it out. Shame wants you to think that you aren't enough, but you are stronger than you think. And I would go as far as this, that in Christ you are enough. Because God is enough. So we want to start there. We, we, we want to start here because transparency, vulnerability, shame, these are the foundation for all of the other prescriptions we're going to talk about. 
Because, in fact, it is essential on the, in the life on earth to deal with this kind of topic. In fact, this is the foundation of the very biblical story. The entire biblical story is built on this idea that shame tends to make people want to hide. Shame creates dysfunction in our relationships. We hide and we blame and we cuss and we get angry because of shame. We fear under it all, all the pressures that we're not enough. And so I want to look at the beginning of shame, which is sadly at the beginning of our story. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to it. Um, I invite you. It's very easy to find. It's at the very, very beginning. So go past the table of contents into Genesis chapter 1, past that into Genesis chapter 2, the last verse of Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to go back to the beginning, to the first, most basic, most primal story of humanity, and see what it has to say about showing up and letting yourself be seen. So here's how the story goes. God creates the whole world. God creates animals and plants and Adam and Eve. You know the story. The first humans. And everything is created and everything is good. So this is how the story starts. Everything's good. This whole section ends with this verse. So this, this is what it looks like. This is what good looks like. Genesis 2, verse 25. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. That's what good looks like in the, in, the, in the creation narrative. Now, Adam and Eve were naked, which is, friends, the ultimate form of vulnerability. But even though they were naked, they never once questioned whether they were enough. Right? They felt no shame, which means they didn't question whether they were enough. They didn't question whether they were enough for each other or for the tasks that God had sent them on or for anything. They had no shame. They had no underlying fear that they were frauds, that they were secretly a mistake. Now remember, this is the beginning of the Bible, the, the most primal basic story of the Bible and one of the most primal ancient stories of humanity. So if you're not even a Christian here, this is just one of the most ancient stories and it's captured in a lot of different ways, but here's how it's found in Genesis. And, and it's all about what? The, what's the story about? It's about shame. It's named right here. It's introduced. So what is the rest of this story going to be about? I mean, we know what it's going to be about. It's going to be about shame. Because right here, at this point in the story, they felt no shame. Now, that's brought up because as the story goes, it's all going to change. Genesis 3, the next chapter, verse 1, says this. Now the serpent, which is a good metaphor for shame, by the way. The serpent, crafty, sneaky, manipulative. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Maybe you know this story. You've heard it many times. Here's the way shame creeps into our life. It's sneaky, manipulative, like a serpent. And it makes you doubt what you know to be true. Shame will make you doubt yourself, make you doubt God, make you doubt the world, what you know to be true. Verse 2. So the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God, did, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. And the snake, the snake says, well, you, certainly, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So two things are happening here. First, the serpent is trying to get them to doubt God. Maybe God isn't telling you everything, right? That's what he's saying. He's like, I know God said that, but he's, he's not telling you everything. Maybe you're not quite important enough 
to know the real story. And so you've missed out. You're, you don't have the whole picture and uh, you don't know the true nature of that tree. And that's the first thing that's happening. So inserting some doubt and like you're, you're too little of a person to really understand what's really going. God didn't trust you enough. And second, he's saying, if you eat this, the truth is you'll be like God. You'll be able to fit in with God all the better. So first he gets in the doubt God in themselves and then provides an answer that seems to, to solve the doubt, to make the doubt look really good. And so you see, this is what's happening. Comparison is one of the great examples or one of the great enemies of vulnerability. And it's rooted in shame every time. Comparison. It's the doorway to shame. And if the story is about shame entering into our experience, then it becomes clear that what it's really about is that this serpent is making Adam and Eve compare themselves to God. And if they eat this thing they, they, they sh that they shouldn't eat, they'll be like God. And I wonder if something clicked in them. And they realized that even though they knew God and they were with God and they had this relationship with God, they realized that they weren't like God. And I wonder if they thought, you know, like if we were more like God, then we could be with God all the more. Maybe God would love us even more if we were like him. See, when we enter into a, a room or into a relationship with someone or a group of people, it's entirely natural, very human for us to try to fit in. What's deeply compelling about this is uh, Brenna Brown says that there's uh, this about fitting in. She says that there's one sure way to prevent belonging like this sense of belonging. Now, belonging is the sense that you belong, that you're part of a group of people, they're your people, you're part of the family, you're accepted. And friends, it is the most basic human need to want to belong, to feel like you're a part of something. Psychologists and scripture both say that like, this is the most basic human need. And there's one sure way to prevent belonging, trying to fit in. If you try to fit in, you will always struggle to belong. Here's why. When you try to fit in, this is what you do. You observe and then you acclimate. Brenda Brown talks about this. You observe and then you acclimate. You say, okay, these people are like this. Okay, I get the sense. You know, like we got a pretty cool band up here. They're not only good musicians, but they're pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it would be very easy for me to want to try to fit in. And uh, so I look at them and I'm like, okay, this is the type of stuff they like. Let me go research some bands that they might like as well. And I'll, I'll text Ben, hey, do you know this band? <laughs> we observe and we acclimate. That's an entirely random example. It never actually happened, I promise. <laughs> we observe and then we acclimate because we want to fit in. And here's the thing. When we do that and we're not accepted after trying to fit in, guess what the byproduct is of that? More shame. Now, here's the opposite that you can do. You can just show up and let yourself be seen. Now, if your goal isn't to try to fit in, if your goal is just to show up and let yourself be seen, if for some reason people don't accept you, you usually don't feel shame. You might be disappointed. There might be grief, maybe confusion, but you don't feel a sense of shame that there's something wrong with you because your goal wasn't to fit in. Your goal was just to show up and let yourself be seen. This is who I am, and we'll see what happens. But here, Adam and Eve... They want to be like God. They want to fit in. They want to have all of the available resources. So verse 6, it says this. So when the, women saw, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, like all of these things like good food, what's a pleasing to the eye, desirable for window, these are the ways that we numb the shame as it enters into our story. So that's, she sees this. She took some and she ate it. So she also gave to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. 
So they sewed fig leaves together to make coverings for themselves. So they disobeyed God. They sought their own way. They tried to fit in. They broke the law. They messed up. And instead of feeling guilt, this sense that you did something wrong, they immediately feel shame. It would have been fine for them to feel guilt. I did something wrong. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have, we shouldn't have ate that. That's really bad. That's not what happens here. They realize they're naked, which is like literally and figuratively a representation of what it feels like to discover shame. And so they felt not only what they did was wrong, but that there was something wrong with them. And so they do what we often do, and shame will do this all the time. Next verse, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid. This new experience didn't strengthen their relationship with God, it ruined it. They hid amongst the trees. They hid from God, and I would say even from themselves, and I would even argue from each other. And while we might not hide amongst the trees, we're still hiding. And we hide behind our jobs, and behind our busy schedules, and we hide behind our Netflix binges, and we hide behind our judgmental attitudes, and we hide behind the way we blame each other, and the way we point fingers, and we hide behind our nice cars or our healthy bodies or our work routines or our know-it-all answers. We're hiding because we don't think we're worth knowing. We hide behind alcohol. This is a big one. We, uh, we, uh, we, we're not, we don't hate alcohol at this church. I don't know if that makes you uncomfortable. Um, we had a bunch of people serving alcohol last night. I, I, I have no problem with beer, but let's be honest. We hide behind it. You wanna know why so many people enjoy drinking while hanging out? Because this alcohol is a temporary way to feel vulnerability. And for some people, it's the only time we come out from behind the trees and we be ourselves. And that's heartbreaking because it's just another mask. If we have to drink or do any other sort of numbing activity to convince ourselves that we're worth it, then we have work to do. Because the truth is we are. We're worth it. We're worth knowing, and you don't have to hide behind anything. Friends, you are enough. God didn't create you to be anyone other than yourself. And when you mess up, there's room for improvement. We get that, but that doesn't change your worth. It's okay to feel guilty when you mess up. You should, but you shouldn't feel shame. And here's what I love about this story. They're hiding, and here's what God does. Verse 9, he says, but the Lord called the man, where are you? The Lord called and said, where are you? Where have you been? I've been missing you. Where are you hiding? Where did you go? And I wonder, I wonder if that isn't the question God has for some of us. We've been hiding. And God is saying, come out. Show up and let yourself be seen. That's, that's essentially what God is saying in this passage. Show up and let yourself be seen. When he asks, where are you? He's really repeating that, that mantra. Show up and let yourself be seen. And they do. Now, if you read the story, there are consequences for their actions. And of course, Adam and Eve um, have to live with those. And uh, as is typical of shame, they blame each other. You can read the story for yourself. Blame is a big part of how we deal with shame. Um, if you're blaming someone for something, there's probably shame involved. And they produces this sort of defensive feelings. But I want to skip to the part um, near the end. 
Because up to this point, Adam and Eve, they've been feeling this massive amount of shame. They've, they've tried to cover their own nakedness. And the shame, is, the shame is, is metaphorically, literally, figuratively, as well as literally represented by their nakedness. And so they see themselves, they don't like what they see. They don't think they're enough, not just because they're naked, but everything that raw nakedness represents, all right? So they don't like who they are. And they, they try to cover it up. They don't do a very good job. They make clothes out of leaves. And when God sees their outfits, he's like, oh, we can do better. And so God does this, verse 24, 21. He says, the Lord made garments of skin, leather, for Adam and his wife and clothed them. He just thought they would be good, you know. No, I won't go there. So instead of leaves, he uses leather. And I, and I love this because God doesn't make Adam and Eve walk around exposing their shame literally or figuratively. He clothed them, which is a really beautiful and intimate thing to do. It's super personal and very vulnerable to be clothed by somebody. But he clothes them not to cover up their shame. It's not like God saying, you know what? I don't like what I see. Get some clothes on. It's not, that's not what's happening here. God is clothing them like a parent would a child. There's nothing that's hidden from God anyways. And he's saying, no, I want you to feel safe. So when we talk about transparency, vulnerability here, we don't mean that you have to lay everything out for everyone to see. You're welcome. When it comes to transparency, this is what we mean. Show up, let yourself be seen. You. And that deeper stuff under the surface, be willing to engage in relationships with people who will earn the right and have the character to bear that story. Did you hear that? I encourage you to write it down. This is what we look like when we share vulnerability, when, we, when we're vulnerable with people, like really about deep stuff. There should be people in our life who have earned the right to hear those stories and have the character to bear them. Okay? So God clothes them and it's meant to empower them, to make them feel better, to make them feel like they can be a new person with a fresh start. And all you, all you have to do is watch Queer Eye to get a sense of what a new outfit does for somebody, right? I mean, this is what God's doing here. So, so the idea of clothing someone is this biblical image throughout the whole story of Scripture. Um, it's a major theme. Um, you see it in the Gospels. You see it in the Old Testament. There's one place in particular that shows up again, God clothing people. It's, it's meant literally here, but also in this much more figurative, metaphorical way around what it means to love someone and embrace someone who's struggling with shame. And so in this, um, there's this one passage in Ezekiel where this metaphor comes up again, and it says this. This is God speaking, and I find this to be so beautiful. We're going to end with this. It says this. When I pass by you, this is God speaking. When I pass by you, I realized that you were ready for love. Oh, I could just stop right there. Are you ready for love? When I passed by, I realized you were ready for love. So I spread my cloak over you and covered your nakedness. I made a solemn promise and entered into covenant with you, and you became mine. This is what the Lord God says. He says, when I passed by, I saw you, and I thought to myself, you know what? This person is so ready to be loved. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to wrap my arms around them and just show them love. I'll cover up their shame. I'll let them be a new person. Friends, we're not going to be able to do anything else um, until we get this right. We can't show compassion real compassion to people if we don't first show compassion to ourselves and receive God's compassion for us. We can't strive for excellence. We're going to talk about excellence next week. We can't strive for excellence in a healthy way if we're constantly comparing ourselves and trying to win God's affection. 
We won't sacrifice or, or give generously if we don't first know what it feels like to receive from God. And, and we're not going to share our faith. And, and we won't be a safe place for diversity. That's one of the last sermons we're going to talk about is diversity. We're not going to be a safe place for diversity unless we allow other people who are different from us to show up and let themselves be seen. And the only way we're going to create a space like that is we've got to show up and let ourselves be seen. We don't have to try to fit in. We don't have to try to be different. We just got to be us. So if we're going to expect it from other people, we've got to model it for ourselves. We need to be a place that is safe and caring and accepting that you don't have to be here long before you realize that you can just be yourself. Does that, does that seem fair? Does that, does that make sense? That's, that's one of the prescriptions that we're striving for here. Yeah, we're going to still challenge you. There are going to be Sundays where you, I hope, feel deeply convicted in a sense of guilt for something you did. I'm, I'm okay with that. Guilt, guilt produces change. I don't want you to ever feel shame. I mean, the reality is you're going to, but I want you to be able to process it in a healthy way and to know that we don't want that for you. We want you to know that you are enough. So, friends, if we do this, I believe that our neighborhood, our lives, and our city will be transformed. I think this might be one of the most significant things we have to offer our neighborhood and our city. This is a big deal. So let's, I want you to spend some time wrestling with it, thinking about it. I'm going to invite the band to come up. I'm going to spend some time in prayer. Um, we're going to sing a song, and then Alyssa's going to come up after that and um, uh, share uh, a little bit more and share some really practical ways of what this looks like as we create a culture of hospitality here in the church, especially as we think about moving to a new location and inviting people to be a part of it. Let's pray. God, we come before you and we ask that as we begin to reflect and pray and think that you would come and speak into our hearts and our lives, that you would break through those barriers, that you would help us show up and, and that you would help us enjoy the good things in life but not use those to numb some sort of unspoken pain or fear of vulnerability. It would help us to live into a, a community of joy and acceptance. It's your name we pray. So I'm just going to talk for a couple minutes about what it looks like to be a part of a community that um, is desiring transparency. And, um, and, and part of that is um, hospitality. So when we think of hospitality, sometimes we think of food. I'm just going to tell you right now, hospitality is not just food. So I'm just going clear to the, clear the way. But so a couple weeks ago, well, I guess it's been a couple months now, um, Joe and I we still had like an hour before we had to pick up Finn from childcare, and we wanted to get an appetizer but not dinner because we weren't too hungry. And so we were driving around, and there's a couple bars in German Village. We were like, we've never been there. We'll just go in, get like an appetizer, maybe a drink or something. So, But we couldn't figure out which one to go into, but we went into one. We couldn't make up our minds, mostly me. Um, so we went into one, and we walk in there, no one looks at us, like no one from the bar, like the staff. None of the staff look at us. It's kind of dark, and um, but everyone who's seated in there, like all of the patrons, stare directly at us as we walk in. And then we didn't know where to sit, and apparently the food was maybe served upstairs, or like we had no idea where we were going. There were no signs, anything. So we start walking up the stairs, and then we're, I'm like, no, 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 we're not going to go up these, like, dark stairs into a room that we have no idea what's going on into. So um, we just left, like, immediately. It was like we were in there for maybe two minutes. Um, so, but right next to, like, like, the buildings are attached, we just walked into the next bar. 
We walk into this bar. It's full of people. Um, there's a couple people working the bar. They don't make any eye contact, but again, everyone seated at the bar stares directly at us. We clearly do not fit in in this bar. And so we sit at the table nearest the door, um, which no one else is sitting at tables. They're all at the bar. So we're sitting at a table, like we don't know how to order, don't know what we're doing. No one talks to us, says anything. We sit there for probably three or four minutes like looking at the menu, trying to see like, do we even want this food? And then we get up and leave. And no one said anything to us at these places. It was the most awkward experience. And I commented the other day, because we walked into another bar again. We don't go to bars that often. <laughs> Mostly because we have an 18 month old. But we don't go to bars that often. But we walked into another bar and I was like, I just feel so out of place in bars. I do, like I didn't, my parents didn't go to bars when I was growing up, so I never went with my family. Um, I uh, like maybe went once or twice in college with friends, but not really, like I, never mind, didn't, whatever. So I went like once or twice in college, like, but never really went to bars. It, but now that I'm older, like, I want to go and like hang out, cause especially like breweries, like it's the thing now to do but I just feel so out of place. And let me tell you, that is exactly how people feel about church. I met someone last night, we were pouring beer at Digfest. Um, she's a bartender, by the way, at Standard Bar, Short North. Good plug for her, because she sold it to me last night. Um, never been there. But, so she's a bartender, and once she found out I was a pastor, she said those exact words to me. I went a couple times growing up with my parents, but they stopped going, so I wasn't going to go without them. Like, I tried a couple places here or there with friends, but I never really went to church, and I just, like, didn't fit in. Those are the exact words that she said to me about church, how I have experienced in bars. And that is our, that's our culture right now. And so think, I want you to imagine, where is, have you ever had that experience where you walk in somewhere and you're like, I do not fit in here? Just think about that place where you're like, I have no idea what to do, no one's talking to me, no one's making eye contact. You got that place? Okay, now I want you to imagine the place where you feel the most welcomed, not your house or your parents' house, but other than those two, hopefully you feel welcomed in those places. Um, but other than those, Imagine a place where you have been and you feel the most welcomed. Like you want to bring people with you. You want to go multiple times. Do you have that place? What are some of the characteristics? You have to talk to me now. What are some of the characteristics of those places where you feel the most welcomed? Hello. Someone acknowledges you and says something. Someone with authority to be silent, right? Yeah. Someone. Yeah. It's relaxed. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that? <laughs> yeah, where you don't actually have to talk. You know, but sometimes you want to be in places and you want to hide. And we recognize that. And I think, you know, some places do a really good job at balancing the people who want to show up and be seen and, like, be there and the, the people who are not yet ready for that but are just testing the water. Um, so yeah, so it's a place where people make eye contact, people acknowledge your presence. I can say in those bars, I literally felt invisible. 
Like, they, did, they didn't know we walked in the bar. Like, how do you just not, like, we're here to pay money for, you know, like, you just are not going to acknowledge us at all. I felt completely invisible. And so places that where we feel welcomed, when we feel hospitality, they make eye contact, they talk to you, they acknowledge you, they answer your questions. Like, you know you have the questions, where are the bathrooms, how do I get in, where am I supposed to go, and where do I sit? You know, those are the things when you go to a new place. And so when we think about hospitality here at Central City, this is not something that is just for the greeters. This is not something, you know, like we schedule greeters and they show up when they're, when they're scheduled. This is not something just for greeters, but this is for everyone. Because when, we're, when we look at transparency and vulnerability, we can begin to have empathy for people. And so when we've experienced we know what it's like to be here, and we know what it's like to be new here. And so then when someone new comes in, we can have empathy for them, we can smile, we can say, hey, is this your first time? Or, hi, my name is Alyssa, and I just wanted to say hi. Do you need any help with anything? It's, you can tell when someone is new, right? Like, the look on your face is, I'm, like you, some people, and I do this too, you like walk in the front door and then you stop, right? That's what you do. You're like, let me assess my surroundings. I'm going to stand here. Let me get a take on everything. So you know those people. And so as people who have been coming here for, for at least a couple weeks, your job, this is where I'm challenging you. I'm going to make you uncomfortable. Your job is to seek out those people. The people that they, they walk in the door and they stand there. Or, this is what I do because I'm not comfortable with vulnerability, I walk in the door and act like I know where everything is. <laughs> like I'm like, I know right where I'm going and then I go to the wrong place, always. I always go to the wrong place, I always get it wrong, but I walk in the door and act like I know what I'm doing and then once, and then it's really awkward and then I just leave. Um, but let me talk, so hospitality, it's not just food. So we think about hospitality, we think of food service, hotels, it's usually um, food. Um, and we have coffee, and that's hospitality. And you know why food is a part of hospitality? Because food breaks down the barriers. Food, when you're holding something in your hand, there's studies that have been done, if you're holding a hot drink, you're most likely to stay longer. You're most likely to engage with the people, which is why we have coffee. Um, so hospitality is not just about food, but food does help. It breaks, breaks down those barriers of, um, I don't know what I'm doing here, but I still want to engage. Um, oh, my favorite story about hospitality is also in the book of Genesis. It's Genesis chapter 18, and this is a story where Abraham and his wife Sarah, um, they have their tent set up and their whole dwelling and everything, and Abraham's just sitting on the front porch one day, and he sees these three guys off in the distance. And he's, he's oh, they're coming our direction. It's the desert, so like no one really comes to visit. So he's like, oh, they're, they're heading our way. So he runs out to greet them. He says, hi, like, can I get you food? Do you want to stay? Do you want to come in? Do you want to sit down? Do you want a break? Do you want some water? And of course they say, oh, yes, we would love that. We would love to stay with you. So the funny thing is that he runs inside and he tells Sarah to do all the work. 
But that's, that's another sermon. We've talked about that before. We'll probably talk about it again. Sarah does all the work. But the point is, is that he sees the visitors. He runs out to greet them, and he welcomes them in with food and drink, but also with relaxing a comfortable environment. So people walk into a church hoping for not only a divine connection. We come to church because we want to meet God here. But we also come to church because we want a connection with other people. If we didn't want a connection with other people, we would just stay home and pray. So we come to church hoping for a divine connection. Now, people, I think, subconsciously desire that, but we don't always know that. We don't always know that when we're walking into a new church because we're scared, because we have masks on. We're not sure if we're going to fit in or if, or if by some chance that we can belong. We're not sure about that on the first time. And so our job as people who have been coming here, people who call this our church home, is to say, yes, you belong. No matter who you are, you belong. So I have a couple practical steps um, for this. And, and one of these, well, so before I get to that, a lot of what Brennan Brown talks about is an attitude of um, attitude of gratitude. You've heard that, right? Attitude of gratitude versus the practice of gratitude. So you have an attitude. You think about it. So she talks about yoga. She ha- she wears yoga pants all the time. She lives in them. She somewhere in her house has a yoga mat. She really likes it, but she's never done yoga. That's an attitude of yoga. Wearing the pants, having the mat. But practice of yoga is actually doing yoga, going to a yoga class, getting rolling out the mat, all of that. And so I want to talk about an attitude of hospitality versus practice of hospitality. A lot of churches, you can walk into most churches and they say, we're a friendly church. Anybody heard that before? We're a friendly church. But most of those churches, I won't say all, but most of those churches you walk in and no one talks to you. But they're a friendly church. They're a friendly church. So that's an attitude of hospitality, thinking we're a friendly church, versus practicing hospitality, actually opening the door for someone, talking to them, acknowledging their presence. So some of those practices of hospitality, I'm really going to challenge you over the next several weeks while we're here. And once we move into this new space, it's going to be, this is our thing. This is what we have to offer. People are, are longing for belonging. They want a connection with the divine, but they actually want, they also want a connection with other humans. So here's your practical homework for the next several weeks. I want you to meet at least one new person every week you come. Now, that's easy because a lot of people, you know, it's summer. People are on vacation. We have, we have guests every week. You don't know everyone in this room. I can guarantee it. So I want you to meet one new person every week, and we're going to practice this. I know it's running over and you've got lunch plans, I'm sure. But meet one new person every week, and meeting them doesn't mean just knowing their name. I want you to, to start the relationship. Where, where are you from? What do you love? That kind of thing. Who are you here with? Those kinds of things. So, so I don't want you to meet every single person every week because then you wouldn't get the deeper relationship. So meet one new person every week. Sit next to someone who is alone or sit next to a couple who is alone. This is really hard, especially in a theater. We're trained when we walk into a movie theater where you never sit next to, next to anyone, right? You, 
It is the worst thing. If someone comes up to you and sits next to you in a movie theater, you get up and move, right? Like, I'm not here to sit next to anyone. That happened to Joe once. That's a funny story. But anyways, um, but here, <laughs> but here, this, we're here for church. And as we move to the next space, we are here for church. We are here for human connection. So sit next to someone who is alone um, or a couple who is alone. And that might help you meet them as well. Come early, stay late. Service starts at 10, but we're here starting at 8. So you can come anytime. We have coffee. Um, the, the windows are open here. Um, at the other space, there's tons of gathering space. So come early, stay late. We want you to meet people, get to know people, because that's where the rela relationship starts. And this is something that we're going to talk about next week as well, along with serving um, and excellence. But if something needs done and you're capable to, of doing it, do it. So what I mean by that is part of hospitality is um, the appearance of the room. So like if there's trash on the floor, if things are misplaced, people notice that, especially guests. So you walk into a hotel and you're like, there is trash everywhere. Or you even question like, oh, the, um, the cleaning, the people who clean the rooms, like their things are in the hallway. That's not that's not nice. Those should be, you know, behind closed doors. Um, you know, you notice those things when they're out of place. And so if you call this your church home, if there's no one opening the front door and you're capable of doing that, open the door for people. If there's no one passing out the updates and you're capable of standing there and doing that for a couple minutes, do that. If there's, if, you know, if there's coffee spills on the coffee area, and you can clean that up, do that. That's part of hospitality, making the room, the space, feel comfortable and inviting for other people like it's not dirty. So the, that's my homework for you over the next couple of weeks. If you call this place your home, um, that's really what it's about. And I would say, I will say this, hospitality is not about the people who are here. Hospitality is about guests. And so we do, we wanna do a good job of taking care of um, people who call this your home. Like we reach out to you, we wanna connect with you and make sure that you're okay. But then your job is to take that one step further with guests. So, um, does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, because I could keep talking, but it's almost 11.30. So, um, yeah, so that's your, that's what, that's what we want to talk about. That's really the culture that we want it to be, that it's not about guests, it's, or it's not about the, that's the wrong thing to say. <laughs> it's not about the people wearing name tags, or it's not about people who are signed up to serve, but it's really about all of us saying, this is our home, this is our place, and we're going to make guests feel welcome here. So that's what hospitality is, and that's the beginning of transparency, because once people are comfortable, they're able to to know that this is a safe place where they can let down their masks. So um, I just have a couple quick announcements to close us. Um, tomorrow night at 6.30, we're going to meet here at the theater, and we're going to do another prayer walk. Last week, we had a really awesome time of praying for the theater and um, this uh, Main Street in Grandview. So I would encourage you, if you're available, tomorrow night at 6.30, um, prayer walk here. And... Um, I think that's it. I didn't write anything else down. So uh, let's pray. And I encourage you before you leave, meet one new person. So let's pray. God, you are the God of hospitality. You are the God who created us, who made this earth for us. 
the beauty and um, the serenity of nature, that you have given all of this to us. And you are the one who continually runs out to meet us when we're far away. God, we pray that you would, um, that you would create in us a desire to be um, more vulnerable, even if that's just taking one small step, that we can put ourselves out there, that we can show up and be seen. God, we pray as we go into this next week that you um, would be walking with us, that you would be walking before us, that you would um, be protecting us and guiding us, and that we would know, we would have the, the eyes to see and the ears to hear where you are already, already working in this community and where we can jump in and join you. We pray this all in Jesus' name by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace, and uh, we'll see you next week here at the theater.